The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to John 14. John 14, you are in for a treat tonight. We're only looking at three verses tonight, but I worry about whether or not we're going to have enough time because they are just loaded with all kinds of good stuff. And the title of my message for you is God's Cure for Worry, Fear, and Anxiety. God's Cure for Worry, Fear, and Anxiety. And once again, the backdrop for our story here in John 14 is the upper room and uh, the upper room discourse begins there in John 13 and carries us all the way through chapter 17. And, and I want to remind you that the mood in the room, as Jesus shares here, the mood in the room is somber. Jesus has just shocked his disciples by telling them that they were all about to forsake him. He went on to say that one of them was about to betray him. And as if that weren't enough, he also told them that he was going to be leaving them and that where he was going, they couldn't follow. Now, Peter interjected and argued with the Lord and insisted, no, that's not going to happen, Lord. And so Jesus turned and told Peter, before the sun rises tomorrow morning, you will deny that you knew me three times. So to say that the disciples were rattled in this moment is to massively understate things. They were completely shell-shocked. They were undone. There was a heaviness that settled on the room like a thick fog. Their world had just come crashing down all around them. They desperately needed a word of hope, a word of encouragement. And perhaps you find yourself in a similar place tonight. What you need is a word of hope. You need a word of encouragement. You feel like the world has come crashing down all around you. And if that's you, I have good news, because that's exactly what Jesus is going to share with you tonight. Begin reading with me there in verse 1 of John 14. It says, These are, again, the words of Jesus. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. Now, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And then Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Wow, I feel like we're on holy ground when we read these words, and and this is some of the juiciest stuff you'll find anywhere in the whole Bible as Jesus shares this message of comfort to those who have troubled hearts. If you go back to verse 1, when Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, the word he uses there for troubled, it, it literally describes a shuddering or a shaking of the heart. In the Greek language, that specific word was often used to describe a wind-tossed, stormy sea. And I think that's a pretty apt description of the internal state of Jesus' disciples in this moment. They were confused. 
I mean, think about all that had transpired in just the past week. It had been just six days prior that Jesus had been ushered into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, surrounded by the chants of, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Save now, save now. And Jesus makes his entrance into Jerusalem. And surely the disciples are looking at each other in that moment. And they're thinking, this is it. This is what everything has been building up to. It's the climactic moment. And surely the inauguration of Jesus' earthly kingdom is only days away. But now he's sitting there telling them that he's about to leave them. It didn't make any sense. They were confused. But they were also feeling disappointed. I mean, if in fact Jesus was really leaving them, then what had the last three and a half years been all about? They dedicated the entirety of their lives to following Jesus. They left everything behind, and, and now it feels like he's abandoning them. He's forsaking them. He's leaving them. They were disappointed, surely. But they were also scared if Jesus was, in fact, leaving, him, leaving them. And then what did that mean for their future? You see, Jesus, he had talked repeatedly to them about how he would be handed over into the hands of sinful men and how he would be crucified. But every time he talked like that, it didn't make any sense. But now it was starting to settle on their hearts and the prospect of having to face a future without him was a scary thought. And I, I just want to posit this point again to comment on this idea that perhaps you can relate to where the disciples were feeling that night. After all, just like them, we live in troubling times. And of course, there's no shortage of things that, that we read about on the news or perhaps scroll through as we look through the news apps or watch TV or wherever you consume your information. There's no shortage of things to feed our anxieties and our worries. Many people have expressed concerns about the direction of our country. <laughs> A whopping 71% of those polled said that they feel America is on the wrong track. At the same time, we have economists sounding the alarm over skyrocketing inflation and the threat of a looming um, economic downturn. War is another growing concern. There was a, I don't know if you caught this or not, but recently there was a retired Air Force general who predicted that America would be at war with China by the year 2025. And then on top of all that other stuff, there's just the everyday worries that we have to contend with. I mean, we worry about our health, we worry about the kids, we worry about our families, we worry about our jobs and our friends, and just like Jesus' disciples, we too need a word of encouragement and comfort for our troubled hearts. So what would Jesus say to you and to me tonight? Well, he says a couple of things, and the first thing Jesus would say to you tonight is, trust me. He's asking you to trust him. He says, you believe in God, Believe also in me. Now, interestingly, he didn't offer to remove the things that were troubling their hearts. He had the power, certainly, to do that, to change things. And that's usually what we want, right? When our circumstances rattle our cage, when things threaten our peace, we want Jesus to just bring us through the storm and get us to the other side. And Jesus doesn't do that. But instead, he says, you believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, he's asking for a certain kind of belief. He's saying, the, the same belief that you have in God, I want you to start believing in me to the same degree and in the same way. 
And he's also asking for them to continue believing on in him in that way. The, the tense of the word believe that Jesus uses there, it speaks of an ongoing action. They had come to this point of trust and faith and belief over the course of the past three and a half years, and Jesus is saying, I need you to keep on believing in me. Why would he say that to them? Well, I'll tell you why. Because his relationship was about to change with them in a significant way. You see, up to this point, they had enjoyed a physical relationship with Jesus. They enjoyed his physical presence. Now, let's, let's just think about for a moment how great that must have been for them. To know that everywhere you go, Jesus is there. And if you're bringing Jesus with you, you don't have a care. You don't have a concern. You don't have a worry. Why? Because Jesus will just fix everything, won't he? There's that story where they found themselves caught in the middle of a stormy sea. But they knew they didn't have to worry. Why? Jesus is there. They wake him up, and he calms the, the storm, and he quiets the wind and makes it placid and calm, and they arrive safely at their destination. A little while later, when they found themselves standing in front of a big, hungry crowd, and they had no food, and they, they didn't know what to do, they knew they didn't have to worry. Why? Well, again, Jesus is there. Bring him a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish, and he multiplies those to feed a hungry crowd of thousands. Even when tax time rolls around and they didn't have the money to pay their taxes, they're pulling out their pockets, they knew they didn't have to worry. Why? Because Jesus is there. Jesus sends Peter down to the lake of the Sea of Galilee with a fishing pole, and he casts his line out, and he catches a fish, and as he reels it in, wouldn't you know it, there in the fish's mouth is a coin that just so happens to be the exact amount of money that is needed to pay the tax. How many of you would love to just hang out with Jesus? He's paying your taxes. He's providing lunch. He's getting you through the storms. Man, he was a handy guy to have around. It's not hard to understand why they were unsettled by all of this. So what Jesus is trying to do here and what he's trying to get them to see is that although their experience of him was about to change, their relationship with him didn't have to. Let me explain. He's saying, I'm still going to be with you, albeit not in the same way, but I need you to keep on believing in me because I'm with you and I've got this and I'm going to get you through. And let me say this, just like the disciples, our challenge is to keep on believing in Jesus even when we can't see him or touch him. Now, praise the Lord, one day soon, seeing will be believing. <laughs> and we'll see him with our physical eyes, and we'll see him face to face, and we'll fall at his feet and cast down our crowns and join the angels as we worship him forever. But in the here and now, in this present time, we're called by God to walk by faith. But that doesn't mean that our faith is baseless or that it's blind. You've heard about blind faith. Our faith is anything but blind. You see, even though we can't see him, we still can experience his presence. Peter talked about this. In his epistle, he, he wrote a letter to some struggling Christians who were enduring fierce persecution. And I want you to read with me what he said to them. He says this, and let's read this out loud. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Notice how he points out, 
you haven't seen him. He's writing to Christians at that time who their situation was not unlike ours. They had never seen Jesus with their physical eyes, but they experienced the joy of his presence, the power of his presence. They knew him intimately, and you and I can know him in the same way. You see, I may not have ever seen Jesus with my physical eyes, but I've seen him show up in my life. Someone say amen if that's true for you. I haven't yet heard the audible voice of God, but I sure have heard him speak to me over and over again repeatedly when I open the word and when I talk to other believers and when I turn on the radio, I hear God speaking all the time. I may not have had the pleasure of walking with Jesus in the flesh, but I see his fingerprints all over his story. His spirit guides me and leads me through the labyrinth of life, and I know he's done it for some of you. Sam and say amen if that's your experience. And so just like these believers, the challenge for us is to trust him. You believe in God, believe also in me. Trust me, Jesus would say, Christian. You're struggling. Your, 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 your soul is a wind-tossed sea. Trust me. I'm with you. I've got this. And I'm going to bring you through. That's Jesus' word to you. His second word is this. He says, trust me, number one. And secondly, he would say to the troubled soul, I'm coming back for you. And this is a glorious promise that we read in verses 2 and 3. He says, in my father's house, there are many mansions, many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. And if I go and prepare a place, I'll come back and take you to be with me. Praise the Lord. This is the promise of Jesus' return. And it has been a salve for the heart of weary Christians for the last 2,000 years. It's a promise we've been holding on to. It's referred to in scripture as the blessed hope of every believer. And again, we need a promise like this because we live in troubling times. And we look at a world that is careening out of control, but we have this hope that someday soon, Jesus is going to come back. And when he does, he's going to right every wrong and our troubles will be over. Now, some people hear about Christians and, and how we talk about the hope of heaven, and, and they see that as an escapist mentality. And they would say, oh, you know, you're just one of those Christians and don't become so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. You remember, maybe you've heard that phrase before. And, and, and it wasn't too long ago that John Lennon of the Beatles fame wrote that song, Imagine. He was of that ilk. And, and he had that song, Imagine. And in this song, he says, oh, just dream with me. Imagine what it would be like if there was no heaven and there was no hell and we all just lived for today. He says, you might say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. And so he, he posits this theory that the main thing standing in the way of world peace is all of these Christians who are talking about a real heaven and a real hell. And if we could just get rid of that, then the, problems were, the world's problems would go away, which I just don't get that. I mean, I for one would contend that the majority of our world's problems today come because it's filled with, this world is filled with people who are only living for today. 
And the results are what you see all around you. I mean, we see debauchery, corruption, hedonism, self-indulgence, depravity. These are the results of living for today. The truth is, those who have made the greatest impact in this world are those who lived principally for the next. I mean, consider all the orphanages that have been built all over the world and all of the museums, not museums, (laughs) all of the um, uh, hospitals that have been built by Christians and missionaries who, because they knew that heaven was a reality and that eternity was real, they had their feet firmly planted on the earth. You see, heaven makes a difference in the here and now. And so I want to talk to you about it for a few minutes. For its part, the Bible talks about heaven a lot. Shows up 532 times in your Bible. That's a lot. And it describes it as a real place. It's the dwelling place of God. It's not just a metaphor. It's not just a state of mind. The New Testament calls us, as believers, citizens of heaven. It encourages us to adopt a heavenly mindset or a heavenly perspective. We're told to direct our prayers to our Father who is in heaven and to store up treasures in heaven where moths and rust can't destroy and where thieves can't break in and steal. So we're to live with a heavenly mindset. But how are you supposed to get excited about going to a place you've never been to before? I think that's part of our problem. We're told to be excited about heaven, but none of us have ever been there. Well, how do you get excited? One of the ways is by finding out what the Bible says about it. You know, it seems like every few years or so, another book will come out where someone will write about their experience and maybe they had a near-death experience or they were clinically declared dead and maybe they get caught up to heaven and they come back and they, they write a book, a best-selling book about their experience. And uh, most recently, maybe you read that book, Heaven is for Real, about the little boy who's caught up and kind of a cool, fascinating story that he has. And, and I'm not here to, to, to say one way or the other about these books and the experiences that these individuals have. I think they're kind of fun and exciting to read. But what I am saying is if you want the definitive answer about what heaven is like, then you ought to spend time in this book because this is God's word. And it's important to know that scripture has a lot to say on the topic. So what do we know about heaven? Well, one thing we know is that it's going to be amazing. It's going to be wonderful. And I, I deduce that fact by considering what is in our world presently. I mean, just look what God has given us in this present world with mountains, and rivers, and valleys, and, and, and just the different colors, and the deserts, and flowers, and, and the sky above us, and, and then the galaxies beyond that, and the universe. I mean, we can deduce certain things about our God just from the world that we call home. We can deduce that he is good, that he is creative, that he's artistic. He takes a different paintbrush each and every night and paints a different sunset. And then you consider the fact that he made all of this in just six days. (laughs) Wow, incredible. And we're living in a fallen, cursed version of earth. If this is earth when it was, it's been broken by sin, then what do you think it looked like prior to Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden? Oh my goodness, we can only imagine. And now you consider the fact that Jesus has been up in heaven for the last 2,000 years preparing a place for us. If he made all of this in six days, what do you think he could come up with in 2,000 years? It's going to be amazing. Now, the Bible records 
the experiences of several individuals who were caught up to heaven, and they tried to write down their experience. And their descriptions are, are inspiring, they're beautiful, and I'll be honest, a little bit puzzling. It's like they're doing the best that they can to describe heavenly realities using earthly language. And so there's, there's some limitations there. It's a bit like, can you imagine trying to describe a sunset, the beauty of a sunset to someone who's been blind their whole life? Like, where do you even start? Or perhaps better for a crowd like this, imagine trying to describe the flavors of Mexican food, like real Mexican food, to someone who's never been to Southern California. It's just, it hits different here. I'm not talking about Tex-Mex. I'm talking about true Southern California Mexican food. It's hard. You can't quite describe it. And those who went to heaven in the Bible and tried to write about it, they had similar experiences. In fact, Paul the Apostle, he talks about a man who, whether in the body or out of the body, he doesn't know, he, how he was caught up to the third heaven. And he says, I saw things and I heard things, inexpressible things, that it would be a crime if I tried to put it into words. I'm like, Paul, I get it, but like, couldn't you at least try? <laughs> I want to hear. Ultimately, the Bible says this. This is 1 Corinthians 2.9. Let's read it together out loud. It's in your notes. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, it's beyond description. It defies comprehension. But again, that doesn't mean there isn't anything we can't know about our future home. I know for me, one of the things I'm really looking forward to about my father's house is being reunited with loved ones who've gone on before me. Like when I get to heaven, oh man, you better believe I'm going to be running down those golden streets. I'm going to run right up to my dad and I'm going to give him the biggest bear hug. And we get to be reunited with loved ones when we get to heaven, those who've gone before us. But there's more. I mean, one preacher, I loved what he said about heaven. He goes, you know, one of the really exciting things about heaven is not just the stuff that will be there. It's also the stuff that won't be there. He described heaven as a place of no mores. And I love that. He said, there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. There'll be no more war, no more cancer, no more need for alarms or security cameras or even locks on our doors. Why? Because there will be no more crime and no more sin. There'll be no more sun or no more noon or no more moon. Why? Because the Lord himself will provide the light in that glorious place. Someone say hallelujah. hallelujah. Now, of course, the ultimate authority on heaven and what it's going to be like is Jesus. He came down from heaven, and he returned there, and so he's uniquely qualified to tell us about it. And, and in his comments here, Jesus specifically focuses on these rooms that he's preparing for those who love him. You see, I love that, because when Jesus came to this earth, he found that there was no room for him in the inn. Remember that from Luke 2? But he doesn't allow that to keep him from preparing a room for everyone who would have him. Praise the Lord. And what are we to make of these rooms that Jesus is preparing for us? Number one, they're an eternal home. When Jesus told his disciples that he was preparing rooms for them, it was another way of saying, get ready. I'm going to prepare a home for you. And I'd just like to say that what was true for them is equally true for everyone who calls Jesus Lord. If you've ever felt out of place in this world, if you've ever felt like 
you just don't belong in this world. If you ever felt like I was made for something else is because you were. This world is not meant to be your home. Christian, you're just passing through, and heaven is your eternal home. C.S. Lewis said it like this, and I love C.S. Lewis. He said, and I quote, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we've ever desired anything else. There is a yearning within the heart of every human being. Why? Because he has literally placed eternity in our hearts. That means nothing in this temporal world can satisfy you because you were made for the eternal home of heaven. And so Jesus talks about that here. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, the word translated as rooms in the NIV, which is what I'm reading out of, it gets rendered as mansions if you're reading out of the old King James version of the Bible. That's how I memorize this verse. In my house, father's house are many mansions. And growing up, I would read about these mansions and I would imagine and picture with my folks, like, what are the mansions going to be like? And what's my house going to be like? And I kind of had this image in my mind, like the super godly people, they got like the big sprawling estates, the manors. It was kind of like you get Graceland, you know, where Elvis lived. And, and then those Christians who, they were pretty good. They got kind of more of like heaven's version of a track home, still kind of nice. And, and then those Christians who just kind of snuck in, they would get like a basic shack complete with an outhouse with a moon carved into the door, that kind of experience. But hey, you're still in heaven. And so my imagination kind of would run wild with that. But in reality, I come to find out these rooms that Jesus went to prepare for us, they may not even refer to physical buildings at all. After all, I just mentioned there's no night in heaven. So why would we need a home to retire to and sleep in? Maybe that Jesus was referring to our heavenly bodies that we're going to get when we arrive in heaven. That's a great thought, especially as I am now firmly entrenched in uh, midlife. I'm in my 40s, which means, oh man, it's just like a whole new bald game in your 40s. And you, you feel aches and pains and, and you judge the, the win of an event by, oh, I didn't get hurt. So that was pretty good, you know. <laughs> and it's great. It's glorious to know that when we get to heaven, we're going to get brand new bodies that are perfectly suited to our heavenly environment. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.1. Let's go ahead and read this verse together out loud. For we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. I love it. The scripture compares these bodies to like a tent. And if you've ever gone camping, if you enjoy camping, you know that a tent is fun for a night or two, but any longer than that, and, and it starts to, you start to feel it all over the place. And maybe your tent is wearing down, and there's some leaks and rips and tears, and God is preparing for you an eternal home, a house not made with hands there in the heaven. I love that. Perfectly suited to enjoy all of the bl blessings of that environment. Well, as great as all that stuff is going to be, I mean, it's going to be wonderful. But as great as that will be, the best thing about heaven is that we're going to be reunited with the Lord. Somebody say amen. amen. 
You see, that's the emphasis here in this passage. Jesus says, look, I'm going there, but I'm coming back to get you so that where I am, there you may be also. We're going to be together once again. And that's God's heart, is that he and his bride might be one. What was severed in Eden is restored through Calvary so that in the consummation of all things, we are brought into this relationship with Jesus, and so we shall ever be with the Lord. Now, there's one more piece to this that I want to draw you into, and it's something that I just find so much beauty in, and I love this, and it's the Jewish perspective. You see, as beautiful as everything we've been talking about is, it doesn't tell the whole story. You see, when you look at Jesus' words here in John 14, specifically in verses 2 and 3, when you look at that through the Hebraic lens, the, the words take on a whole new meaning. And there are several aspects of what Jesus says here that mirror perfectly the speech that a young prospective groom would give to his betrothed bride prior to their wedding day. You see, there were several elements of a Jewish wedding that you can see played out in the the story before us. The first step in a Jewish wedding involved the establishment of the marriage covenant as well as the, the procurement, the bride price would have to be paid. It was called the ketubah. And, and it stated, you know, this, this father had raised this young girl and at great expense to himself. And so the young man who wants to marry the bride would come to the father of the bride and he would establish the bride price. And it was said that the father of the bride would set the price based on how much he loved her. So it was always exorbitant, and it was always outlandish, and it was always high, and so they would settle on a price. Well, that's essentially what Jesus had done when he shared the Last Supper with his disciples. The price was set that he was willing to pay when he picked up the cup of the covenant, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is what I'm willing to pay to secure my love for you, my blood shed for the remission of sins. We haven't been bought with transitory, temporary things like gold or silver, but rather with the precious blood of God's own son, Jesus. And so he sets the price that he's willing to pay. Now, after the terms of the marriage had been agreed upon, every Jewish groom would then look at his bride-to-be, and he would make a similar speech. He would tell her, okay, now I'm going away, and I'm going to my father's house. What will you be doing? Well, I'm going to build a room. See, in in ancient Middle Eastern culture, it was customary that that you would just build onto the existing home of your parents, and every family was kind of multi-generational in that way. And even if you go to Nazareth to this day, you'll find every home looks like a high-rise building. It's because each generation builds their level on top of the previous one. And so he would say to her, I'm going to build the bridal chamber, and then I'll come back, and I'll get you so that we can be together. It was a a beautiful speech, a romantic speech. And at the father's house, the groom would begin to work on the addition of the house. The father of the groom was said to be the official judge of when that room was done. (laughs) And that was for good reason, right? If it's up to the young groom, he's just going to throw up a quick tent. He's like, I'm ready. Let me get my bride. And so it was customary for the father of the bride to say, no, not so fast. 
If you're going to be raising my grandchildren in this home, then, then it needs to be nice. And, and so he would then go to work. And, and as the time drew near, it was customary for the father to find little flaws. Oh, I see that you still need some molding here. And uh, I think the flooring could use some work over here. And this could be leveled. And, and he would keep working the sun until the point of exhaustion. And then, well, this was another cool part. So the son didn't know when his wedding day was. Only the father knew. And he had to wait until the father said, it's time. You're done. The bridal chamber is ready. You can go get your bride. And so if you were to say, see this son working on his house, you'd say to him, oh, when's the big day? And he would say, only my father knows the day and the hour. How cool is that? And so one day, the son has done, been working. And, and by the way, this whole time, the bride doesn't know either when her husband is going to snatch her and, and whisk her away for their wedding and their honeymoon. But she's gathering intel and hearing reports. Oh, I've seen the room. And it's getting closer. He's almost ready. It's going to be any day now. And then the father of the bride or the groom would wait until his son had fallen fast asleep. He's very tired. And he would wake him up and he'd say, son. The time is now. Go get your bride. And he would wake up. And he would run to his best man, the groom's, the, the, the best man's house. And he would grab his friends. And they would begin to hoop and holler and make their way in this procession through the streets of ancient Jerusalem. And when the bride, knowing that the time was near, she would begin to have sleepovers every night with her other, her other bridesmaids. And then when they heard the haulers and they saw the lights of the candles of the groomsmen making their way through the streets, that's all the time that she had to get ready for the, the wedding night. Ladies, how would you like that? You know, you got about seven minutes <laughs> to get ready for your wedding night. And so she's getting ready and throwing on the dress. And then, sure enough, he whisks her away. And they would celebrate their honeymoon. And no one would see the bride or the groom for seven days. And then afterwards, they would emerge. And they'd have this grand party. Oh, I see in that a beautiful picture of what God wants to do with his church. You see, the whole scene with Jesus and his disciples that is beautifully depicted in this Jew Jewish tradition points to this event we call the rapture of the church. Jesus, our heavenly bridegroom, paid the bride price. He went to the cross. He set the affection of his love at the price of his own blood shed for you and I. He drank the cup. And when we drink the cup, we seal our vows. And we say, yes, I want to be betrothed to you, Jesus. I love you. And he's gone to his father's house, where he's preparing a room for us. And he says, I'm coming back soon. And we're, for our part, getting ready. We're the bride of Christ. And so we don't know the day or the hour, but we do know the times and the seasons. And as I look around at the world today, what do I see? I see all of the things that are falling into place that would suggest to you and I, the hour is drawing nigh. And now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. And so we need to be ready. We need to be ready because Jesus is coming so that where he is, there we may be also. And we'll be caught up to heaven where we'll enjoy a seven-year honeymoon with the Lord. Well, all hell breaks out loose down here on earth. And then we'll come back to the earth with Jesus as his wife. And we'll enjoy a thousand year reign of Christ known as the millennial kingdom. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. 
Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.